we continue with the question, what do we know about the origin of man's ability to limit the omnipotence of God in the moral realm from the Bible? The Bible and observations of ourselves and the world about us has established beyond question the fact that God's will is not being done on the earth. We have addressed ourselves to the problem as to how this unhappy state of affairs could have come to exist in God's beautiful world. We considered first, you will recall, that no other being could impose limitations upon God apart from God's choice to create a situation that involved this possibility. Secondly, that another sphere of creation than the purely materialistic one had to be entered into if God's moral character and love and goodness were to be appreciated. Thirdly, that virtue and goodness is more important than intelligence and power, and thus it would be expected that God would create such beings. Fourthly, that the creation of such beings could only result in limitation of divine omnipotence. Fifthly, that the idea of a controlled will is an absurdity. Thus, moral government must take the place of causative government. God's promises, rewards for obedience, and threatens punishment for disobedience. We now add in the sixth place that if free moral beings endowed in the image of God with free will are not directly controllable, there is the possibility and the grave danger that such autocrats of their own actions and destiny will refuse to be guided by the intelligence and truth that God sheds forth. They may transgress all the moral influence that God can lay before them consistent with their moral freedom and cloud the universe with chaos and disobedience with all its dire consequences. Having the power, therefore, to create virtue and add to the worth of the universe to the glory of God, they at the same time must of necessity have the contrary power of disobedience. The one without the other is impossible. If man cannot disobey, neither can he obey. Obedience is simply the denial of disobedience. It is a refusal to take the wrong course because a choice to take the right course. If only one course is open, man is a mere machine and not a responsible moral agent. The creation of beings with such endowments, therefore, involves the risk that sin might enter into God's domain with its attendant unhappiness and grief and its challenging moral governmental problems. Man might do what he in fact did do, no evil as well as good, as we read in Genesis 3.22. In the seventh place, notwithstanding all this, the wisdom and benevolence of God valued the possibilities and contributions of virtue so highly that the risk of the entrance of sin and disobedience did not prevent God's great creative venture in Genesis 1.26, we read the thrilling statement, Let us make man in our image, 
after our likeness. And so man was formed in particular tenderness, as we read in Genesis 2, 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. How tenderly was man sent forth on the venture of life. God would do his utmost to guide man in the pathways of obedience. And every probability was that man would recognize the wise and blessed pathway of his creator. Not to create man would leave such a void in the universe that God resolved to create moral beings in the hope and expectation that the great catastrophe of sin would not occur. But the point to be clearly recognized is this that God did not have two choices to make, but only one. He could not choose to bring man into existence as an exalted moral being, and then make another choice as to whether or not man was to be allowed to fall into disobedience and sin. Rather, the choice to create moral beings involved the dire consequences that might take place by man's abuse of his moral privileges. But the glories and virtues far outbalanced the possibility of evil consequences. And so the wisdom of God resolved to create. Man did not begin to limit the omnipotence of God when he sinned and rebelled. He was so clothed with this ability by his very creation and constitution, and abused in the matter of sin what he had already possessed by virtue of his endowment. The limitations of omnipotence that God entered into were entirely self-imposed, therefore, and were entered into for an area of expression and multiplication of his own great love and benevolence. Thus God's moral character motivates him in all that he does. God intends blessing toward all, and proposed to greatly increase the happiness of the universe by the creation of multitudes of appreciative moral creatures. But alas, sin entered and marred what might have been. Nevertheless, the, in the clouded background of sin, the virtues of the obedient shine all the brighter. They are the Lord's portion, we are told and God figuratively speaks of them as the apple of his eye. Friend, is not this a challenge to a life of holiness and sincerity? God calls them his beloved ones and endures much abuse of sinners because of the presence of his jewels, so to speak, which we read about in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 17. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them, as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. And so in the eighth place we may remark that the great God, in his self-imposed limitation, humbly holds his omnipotence in obeyance, and beseeches men to walk in his pathways. He is no respecter of persons, we are told. God is strictly impartial toward all his creatures. 
In the 10th chapter of Acts, in verses 34 and 35, we read, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. We have the same thought in Romans 2.11. There is no respect of persons with God. But God's requirements are simple and most reasonable. As the prophet Micah set them forth in his sixth chapter and verse 8, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. These are the most reasonable requirements of the great kind God of the heavens. But God pleads with the intelligence of man to walk in his ways and be blessed. And all of God's measures and commandments have this simple objective. We read in the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, verses 1 to 5, the admonitions of God through Moses. Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments, which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. So God appeals to the reason and the intelligence of his creatures to follow in his pathways. But in the principles of righteousness, God must of necessity react to our uh, obedience or disobedience. And so we read in Romans chapter 2 and verse 6, Who will render to every man according to his deeds. And further in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 8 to 10, If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it do evil in my sight, that obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good, wherewith I said I would benefit them. And so the very principles of God's kingdom must be that he reacts to our attitude toward him. And so in the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy, verses 19 and 20. God manifests his operations before all. None shall find any flaws in God's dealings with men. God spake these words through Moses. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice, and that thou mayest cleave unto him, for he is thy life, and the length of thy days, 
that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Therefore it is man's will that determines his own destiny and the blessings along the way of life. No one shall be saved by divine omnipotence. God has placed a voluntary limitation upon his operations in respect to man's exalted endowments. God has power over his power, and in great long-suffering pours forth his love and his kindness toward man. How will you react to this challenging truth from the Word of God? May we pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is with great thanksgiving that we have pondered this great revelation of thy character and of thy great power, and how we are humbled to think that thou, being as great as thou art, nevertheless dost humble thyself to plead with us, mere mortals. Oh, that many this day may respond to the tender measures of thy kindness. Repent of sin, a absolute must in salvation. Come to the cross of Jesus by faith. Find glorious forgiveness from thy very heart of love and go on to serve thee and delight themselves in thy great power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.